Welcome to FaithBridge Sermons Podcast. This sermon features founding pastor Ken Werlein and was recorded on Sunday, October 31st as part of the series, How to Be Human, a fresh look at the Ten Commandments. If you live close by, join us next Sunday either at 9 or 11 a.m. And you can always join us online at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Ken. Why don't you take your Bibles and we're going to go in the Old Testament to Exodus. And if you need a Bible, uh, you could wave at one of the ushers in both of our rooms and you're welcome to borrow one or you can even keep it as our gift. And so we'll be going to the second book in the Bible. That's Exodus in a few minutes. While you're turning there, I'll tell you a story about Keith Richards who of the Rolling Stones, who uh, more than 50 years ago, woke up in the middle of the night. He had this musical riff going in his head and he couldn't could get it out and he didn't want to forget it. So he, he jumped up, grabbed a tape recorder and laid it down so that he would remember it the next day. And he went back to sleep then. Several days later, Mick Jagger would write the words for that tune and three weeks later, they would actually record that song, The Rolling Stones would, and it would become The Rolling Stones' first number one hit in Britain and the United States. You know what the song was? I can't get no satisfaction. Yeah, and here's what is interesting. I didn't know this, so I was reading uh, here recently. Uh, Mick Jagger pinned those words, I can't get no satisfaction, because he was so frustrated with the American mindset, which was so consumeristic. Now, of course, they would go on, the Stones would, and sell 240 billion albums, and he would become a millionaire multiple, multiple, multiple times. And so I'm wondering if maybe he got over a little bit of the angst that he had against consumerism. But I do know people, and I bet you do too, who seemingly could sing the same song, I just can't get no satisfaction. I'm thinking of a man who walks into his garage, looks at a perfectly good car, runs just fine. It's not even two years old and he says to himself, I need to get a new car. Or a woman who goes into her closet and is just lined with clothes all around and, and she muses to herself, I don't have one thing to wear. Or children who look at their toy boxes or their Xboxes and think, this is so old, it's worthless now. Or the couple who says, why can't we have a, a house like their house or a kitchen like their kitchen or an outdoor kitchen like their outdoor kitchen or a pool like there's an on and on. We can't get no satisfaction, seems like. And it doesn't stop just with the things. Man thinks to himself, wow, That guy's wife is beautiful. Why can't my wife age more like her? Or a woman who thinks to herself, now her husband, he'd be a great husband. He's friendly, upbeat, good with the kids, helps around the house rather than just breaking things. And all I get is... him. People sigh and ask themselves, 
Why did I have to get the family that I have? Our family, we, other people's families, they get to go on great trips. They go to places like Hawaii and Disney and Europe. And the best we ever seem to do is we never can get any further than Lufkin. And, and so I wonder if you've ever felt any of these kinds of lack of satisfaction. We've been doing a series here at FaithBridge this fall that's on the Ten Commandments. And today we're talking about commandment number 10. I've been describing it to you, but I'm going to read it to you in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Coveting. We don't think about that one a whole lot. We don't even talk about it very much, really. But I think we need to, particularly on this Candy Palooza Sunday, before we go rushing out of here to gather our kids up, get them costumed and running around the neighborhood to collect more candy than any of the other kids in the neighborhood. <laughs> so here's how I want to go at it. If you're a note taker, the first thing I want to talk about is what is it? What is coveting? What does that even mean? It, does it mean that you have a desire for something that you don't have? No, it can't be that you just have a desire for something because, for example, 1 Corinthians tells us in chapter 12, you should eagerly desire the greater spiritual gifts. And the psalmist tells us in 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Plus, if none of us ever had any desires for things like education, there would be no colleges, there would be no universities. And if no one had desires to have a family or companionship, there would be no marriage, no children. Without desire, the world would die of simple inertia. No, it can't be just desire. That's not the problem. That's not what coveting is. It's desire that turns towards something that is wrong or that violates the rights of others. That's what coveting is. See, it's not wrong to want a spouse or to have some pets or a car or a computer or tickets to the Super Bowl. But it's quite another thing to want those things if they belong to your neighbor. Coveting doesn't say just maybe one day we'll get a great house. Maybe one day I'll, I'll have a great job. Coveting, coveting is that, that inner crave for his job, for her house, his wife, her husband, his talents, her skills, her success, her fame. It's this insatiable craving that drives us on the inside and it can overcome any of us. Covetousness is what many believe overcame the the musician in the 1700s called Salieri. 
Maybe you're familiar with his story. Salieri was an accomplished musician. He could write beautiful melodies and choral pieces and instrumental works that were all so impressive. And he was a devout Christian. He loved the Lord. And he wanted all that he did to give glory to God above. He wanted to lift people's hearts in praise to God. And and so he was praying regularly, Lord, let me serve you through my music. And it went swimmingly for any number of years until one day in the back half of the 1700s, a young whippersnapper came along called Mozart. Now, Mozart, (laughs) he was an exceptional prodigy. He played music. I mean, his fingers running across the, the, the keyboard like it was nothing. Melodies that were complex and fun at the same time. Songs that soared so high it felt like it was grabbing hold of heaven and bringing them down to earth. And yet, Mozart was such an obvious sinner. He was a godless man. He was a woman, nizer. He was vulgar. He was, he was obscene. And Salieri, he couldn't stand it. How could life be so unfair? Salieri thought. I'm the servant of God after all. Why should Mozart be blessed with such talent? He thought to himself, I've spent my whole life cultivating this music. Why should it just come so easily for Mozart in his young age? Salieri just couldn't understand. I've lived in pious obedience to you, God. Why should Mozart get to live like hell and be more famous and beloved than I? Well, interestingly, Mozart dies at the young age of 35. And though it's never exactly been proven, some have suspected that Salieri poisoned him. And in the dramatic climax of the film about these two, you see Salieri, who outlived Mozart by 30 years or so, sitting as an old man out of his mind in a wheelchair. He's gone insane, and he's in an insane asylum because it just drove him crazy how Mozart had just moved ahead of him. Now, you say, well, that's an interesting story, but I don't have any of that. Really? I would challenge you. I think all of us have a little inner Salieri, if we're not careful about it, that can manifest. Like maybe your boss promotes your office mate and you're thinking that was the promotion that I was supposed to get. Or maybe the guy that, or gal that you've had a crush on so long and prayed Please, God, please. Maybe that person went off with your best friend instead. Or maybe the coach decides, yeah, you're not starting anymore. Sit down and start somebody else. Or maybe you don't get the votes that you wanted, that you needed for cheerleader. And you'd worked so hard at it. You wanted it so much. Oh, Salieri can live in all of us. This covetous nature. What is it? It's this inner craving that says, I have to have this. And if I don't have it, I'll never be fulfilled on the inside. So that leads to a second thing. Why do we have to deal with it? I'll tell you why. Because 
Coveting never ends well. It never ends well. Whatever we end up coveting becomes an idol inside of our minds and ultimately it disappoints our hearts because idols can never deliver on what they've promised. What do idols promise? Happiness. Happiness ever after. But they can't deliver. It never works. John Ortberg writes a parable about this. He says, once there was a young girl whose parents took her to the shrine of the golden arches. And there she saw an opportunity to buy a combination of food and a little plastic toy that someone in a moment of marketing Jesus named the Happy Meal. And she said to her parents, I, I want to have that happy meal. I must have that happy meal. In fact, I can't live on without that happy meal. And they said no. But she begged and she pled and she said to her parents, I, I, I want to have that happy meal so very, very much that if you'll get that happy meal for me, I'll, I'll never ask you for anything ever again. No more complaining, no more demanding. I'll be content for the rest of my life. And they thought, well, that's too good a deal to pass up. So they bought her the happy meal. And sure enough, she grew up happy. <laughs> Grateful, contented. Come hell or high water, through thick or thin. Oh, now, the man that she married, he turned out to be a louse. He abandoned her in their young years of marriage, leaving her with three children and no money. And her children, well, they mooched off of her after dropping out of school prematurely, and eventually they left her without a trace. And when she was an old woman, the social security system failed, and so she had to live from hand to mouth. But she never complained because she was fulfilled after her parents had bought her that happy meal. Now, could that ever happen? No, that could never happen. And you'd think we would learn this, right? I mean, it's one thing if we're little and we think that'll make me happy, but it doesn't ever leave us. We keep going along in life and we keep thinking, it's the next thing. That's going to finally do it for me. Maybe one day when I can drive, that'll be it. Or the day that I graduate from high school. Or one day when I get my degree, then I'll be happy. Or when I can finally get that new car. Or when I can finally lose this weight. Or when I finally meet and marry Mr. Wright or Ms. Wright. Oh, Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's something a little further off. Once I've paid for the last kid to get through college, then I'll be there. I'll be happy. Or once we've paid off the mortgage, once we have enough to retire, that'll be it. Then finally, I'll be happy forever after. But none of those things ever delivers what our souls are wanting, happiness ever after. The only way that you can stay happy in any given moment, even the most perfect of moments, even the most sublime of moments, is to convince yourself this moment is going to last forever. That's the only way. You have to delude yourself into thinking this is never going to end. Because the moment you realize, wait a second, this isn't going to last forever, it's going to, get, it's going to come to an end. As the poet Wallace Stevens writes, that's the moment that the dagger goes into our hearts. So why do we have to deal with covetousness? Because it never fulfills. 
It's a lie from the pit of hell. In fact, it might be, some scholars surmise, it might be the most treacherous of all the commandments, all 10 of the commandments. Why? Because it triggers so many others. Let me illustrate. Let's look at the life of King David. You go back in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And you remember King David, now if anybody had it all, it was King David. Here's a man who, who, who lived under the blessing of God. He has wealth, he has prestige, he has power. He leads Israel into its finest years. His son will become his heir apparent and will lead them into their golden uh, age. And so you think, now that man, that guy, he had to have been happy. He got it all. And yet, clearly not. Because one day when he was in middle age and maybe he looked in the mirror after he got out of the shower and realized he had a little soft underbelly now that didn't used to be there. Or maybe some gray that was encroaching or maybe it was just all gone. And, and <clears throat> but something made him feel like I'm losing a step. I don't have it anymore like I used to have. And so instead of getting up and going off to war with his young troops, which he should have done, he stayed home, took a nap. And after that nap, he got up and went up to the palace roof where it says he just was surveying all of Jerusalem. And then his eyes fell upon Bathsheba, a beautiful young lady who was taking a bath that needed a shower curtain. But in any event, he sees her and he says to himself, I want to have her. His servants, they know exactly what he's saying. Sir, you can't have her. No, sir, because your honor, she's married. She's married to one of your, one of your great men, military men, Uriah. But he convinced himself, no. No, I'm never going to be happy. I'll never be fulfilled unless I have her. Get her for me. Well, at their command, at his command, they went and they got her. And he takes her from her husband, Uriah, thus breaking the eighth commandment not to steal. And then he gets her pregnant, having broken the seventh commandment not to commit adultery. And then to cover up the scandal, he arranges for her husband Uriah to be killed in battle, moved up to the front where they'd pick him off pretty easily. And that's the sixth commandment. You shouldn't murder. And he does all of this so deceptively which brings him right up to the precipice of the ninth commandment about telling the truth. And how did all of these dominoes fall because of commandment number 10? Coveting. Coveting Uriah's wife and convincing himself, I'll never have, I, I, I've got to have her or nothing else will be right with the world inside my soul. See, when we're covetous, we think only or mostly of what we want, what would make us happy. Because we believe that if we got that, then our lives would be better and happy, regardless of what it does to other people. I think of a friend of mine who had an affair a while back with another man's wife. I didn't know about that when it was going on because he didn't tell me about that part. But do you think it provided for him everything which his soul had been longing for? No. I mean, it was a buzz at the start. 
but his life. His whole family got all messed up as a result of it. Because the sin of coveting is a lie from the pit of hell, convincing us that's going to make you happy. Oh, like I said, it might make you happy for a little while, but so can heroin, so can anything. Anything can give you a momentary high until you come down and you realize, no, it didn't, it didn't get me what I really wanted. I still can't get no satisfaction. So let's talk about a third thing. What can we do about it? How can we prevail over this? Maybe, maybe it's this. Maybe we just need to stop desiring things. Just, just, just stop. I'm, just not, I'm not gonna want anything. I'm just gonna cut off all my desires. If you went down that pathway, you would actually be stumbling into Buddhism. And maybe you've studied that in major world religions because that's what Buddha taught is that desire itself is the source of all evil in the world. And so therefore, if we could just eliminate all of our desires, we would eliminate all evil and we would live in a state of nirvana. But Jesus didn't come to give us nothingness. No, that can't be it. It's not. There's a better narrative. There's a better story. It's the gospel story. Gospel is just a a fancy word that means good news. And I wonder, do you know this good news? This gospel story, this story of good news, it doesn't start with such good news. It starts with bad news. It starts with the reality that it's, the Bible says you and I, all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We're all sinners. I probably don't have to convince you of that because you just look at your life. You're like, yeah, I say things I shouldn't say. I do things I shouldn't do. I go to places I shouldn't go. I am a mess. Yes, that's what the Bible's saying. And it's at that point that any person looking at it objectively would be right to conclude if there is a God who is holy, who is sinless, who is perfect, who, commit, who, who created us to live this life of fellowship and closeness with him in unity and unison with him. If there's that God, then he would have every right to wad us up like a little wad of paper and throw this whole world into the trash can and say, I'm quitting on you. You all have just messed everything up. But that's not what God did. And this is why we call it good news because God, he did one better. He said, I'm not moving away from you. I'm gonna move closer to you because you'll never fix the problem that you've created. And that's why he sent his only son, Jesus, through whom he would come into the world. Jesus, who would live the life of sinlessness that none of us could live. And then he'd die the death of punishment that all of us should deservingly die as the consequence for our sin, but he stepped in as our substitute. And then on the third day, he conquered the grave and says to all, if you'll tie yourself to me by faith, if you'll put your trust not in what you've done or not done, but if you'll put your trust and your faith in me and what I've done for you, you too can have life, everlasting, eternal, and abundant. That's why we call it Good news. That's what the gospel 
is about. And that's why Paul could write, the apostle, the early evangelist church planter in the Mediterranean area 2,000 years ago. He could write to some Christians in a little land called Philippi, a little village called Philippi. He could say in Philippians 4, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. Either way, I've learned the secret. The secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. You're like, well, I want to know the secret. What's the secret that you've learned? How do you be content no matter what you got or what you don't got? He says, ah. By the way, contentment, that's a great word. You know what the word contentment means? It means to be fully satiated. It's a a term that connotes food. Like suppose you go to a really fine restaurant and you just have this marvelous meal. The whole thing is served. You even feel good about paying all the money. That you're, it's just like, it's, this was such a good experience. And you don't overdo it at dessert. Because sometimes at dessert you go, oh, God, it was so going so well. But then I overdid it. And, and you don't go that far. And you get up and you leave. And you say, I'm just so fully satiated. That's what this word contentment means that Paul is talking about here. And he's saying, I have learned the secret of how you can be content, whether you have everything or whether you have nothing. And it comes in verse 13. I can do all of this through Christ who gives me strength. Now, some people errantly think, if I just say that word and try to throw the football, it'll go a little bit farther. That's not what he was saying. Now, a better way to to translate it might be, I can do all things through Christ who is my inner strength. He's trying to help us realize that contentment will never rise and fall on the externals. He's saying, look at me. I've had everything. I've had nothing. Having everything, it didn't make me content. Having nothing didn't make me discontent. So I can go either which way. How, Paul? Because I've realized that contentment has nothing to do with what I have. It has everything to do with who I'm with. And by who I'm with, he's not talking about people like you and me. He's talking about one person in particular with Jesus, Christ, who lives within me and gives me strength. Because if you're with Jesus, Paul says, you've got everything you'll ever need. There's an apocryphal story I've told you before, but I I, I just love it because I think it illustrates so well what Paul was saying here. It's a story of a wealthy merchant who had taken a fast nation to Paul, the apostle, and he wanted to meet him. And so he arranged when he was passing through Rome, he arranged with Paul's servant or or protege, Timothy. He arranged to have a meeting with the apostle Paul in prison, in his cell. As the story goes, he went inside the cell and the merchant it sits down with Paul and they begin to converse. And first thing that struck him is how old and frail Paul was physically. And yet the more they talked, the more he could feel his strength, this inner fortitude from within, this magnetism that just came out of the apostle Paul. They talked for some time until finally he thanked him and he stepped out of the prison cell. And he walked out and he reconnected with Timothy. 
And he shook his head and he said, I've never seen anything like that. Paul has such peace, such strength going on on the inside of him. And yet he's in prison. I don't have that peace. I don't have that strength. And I don't have it nearly as bad as Paul has. And Timothy said to the merchant, well, did you not figure out what the source of that strength is? And he said, no. What? He said, oh, he's in love. Paul is in love. Love with love with who? He's in love with his savior, Jesus Christ. The merchant said, is that all? He said, oh, that is everything. And that's why you can give Paul everything or you can give him nothing. Either way, he says, I don't care. Just give me Jesus. And as long as I'm with him, I'll have all that I need. That was the secret to his inner contentment. And it could be the secret for you for me. It's what Jesus offers to all of us. The freedom to step off the treadmill of wanting and feeling this compulsion to always have more and the next thing and to convince ourselves I'll never be happy if I don't have it. To step off of that and say no. Just give me Jesus and I'll have everything I need for the rest of this life and throughout eternity. I wonder, do you know him? Do you know him personally? I hope that you do. I'm concerned that there's plenty of people who say, oh yes, 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 I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus. No, 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 but, but I look at your life. There's no peace. Um, there's no equilibrium. There's, it, it's always sort of like the Tasmanian devil. Something's not right. I wonder if maybe you need to let Jesus drop more deeply into your soul, that you might need to prioritize a little bit more time talking with him and reading his word and being filled by his spirit because if you would, others will begin to pick up on the difference. And that's what I want for you. Let's pray right now. Lord, thank you for the freedom that you give to us, freedom to be content Freedom from the bondage of coveting, of convincing ourselves I'll never be happy otherwise. Lord, thanks for the reality, for the truth that you make so clear in your word that no matter what we get, it will never really ultimately provide that only you can do that. That only you can fill that, that, that void inside of our soul. And so my prayer is, Lord, that you would, in each of our hearts and minds, drop more deeply. Even today, friends, if you're here and you just came because a friend invited you, but you never have said yes to Jesus, not in a serious sort of way. I would invite you, even as I'm praying these words aloud, you can borrow the words and just say, Jesus, I'm asking you to come into my life, to forgive me of my sins, to cleanse me of all unrighteousness, to fill me full of your spirit, to give me a new start, to show me new purpose, to give me new friends, to teach me what it means to follow you and to know you so personally that I could be anchored by you no matter what I have or don't have. 
For we pray all of these things in your strong name, Jesus. Amen.